0: Let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would receive praise during this time and as a result of this time in our lives. And so we pray for your spirit's help now to make the truth of this word known in our minds and hearts that we might live in accordance with it. And we pray this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Asking the right question makes all the difference. And so knowing which questions to ask is a key to success. One of the most important questions for life That we might not ever genuinely ask, and yet one that we deeply feel, is how can I escape death? More specifically, God's judgment upon death. Well, God has answered that question for us in his word and in history through Jesus Christ. And he's done this for his own glory, which is good news. Because it means that he wants you to ask that question and embrace the answer in order to bring him praise. And as we wrap up our study in the book of Romans today, the Apostle Paul is bursting with praise. And here's why. It's because he's answered the greatest question and the ones that come with it in the gospel He's told us throughout this book, how can, I, how can we be saved from God's wrath and experience eternal life? And bursting with praise to God, he answers another question that you might have this morning. How can I be confident in his answer? I pray that answering these questions today will help us burst with praise, just like Paul And it's a good day for doing that. If you're wondering why we're we're here in Romans 16, 25-27 on Easter Sunday, well, some might say it's because of where we were last week. (laughs) But it's also because if we don't wrap up Romans today, we won't wrap it up for another four weeks, and that just didn't seem right. So, here we are. And yet, because it's Easter, I do want to give particular attention to where the resurrection applies and I think you'll see that it's impossible not to. It really is. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Romans chapter 16, verse 25. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 1009. 1009. If you're new to the Bible, the large, bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses. And today we're looking at 25 through 27. 27. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now to just recap the book up to this point. Paul's written this letter to a young church in Rome about the faith, the Christian faith. It's the good news about Jesus, which is powerful to save all who believe. And all who truly believe live in obedience to that faith, which means they live in view of God's mercy. And so we seek to live like Christ and make him known among all people which is one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter. He's asking for this church's partnership in doing the work of the gospel and making it known to all people. And having addressed them personally as his friends, he saves the very end of the letter for God. The whole letter ends in praise to God for his power in the church. And so here's what we ought to do with this ending. We should rejoice with Christian assurance for God's sake. Rejoice with, Christians, with Christian assurance for God's sake or for God's glory. It's for his name. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and follow along, there are two reasons in the text to rejoice like this. First, because of our confidence in his power. That's in verses 25 through 26. Confidence in his power. And second, because of confidence in his wisdom. Verse 27. Confidence in his wisdom. Now, just so you know, that first point is basically going to be the whole sermon, and there's three sub points. So, we're confident in his power according to the gospel. According to his word, or the prophetic scriptures, prophetic writings, and according to his plan, his eternal command. So that's how you can kind of listen as we go through, and then we'll conclude with confidence in his wisdom. So, first, confidence in his power. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. I'm going to pause there. Because again, what we see here is that Paul is just bursting with praise to God. And I love that this comes on the heels of love for this local church he's writing to. Paul's just finished addressing his dear friends in Rome with great affection. So you'd understand if that what comes next here is are are words full of concern for them. That's what happens to me when I'm disconnected from those I love. I, I, I tend to worry about them. Clearly... He loves them. And no doubt, Paul is concerned for them. He includes a warning in that final address to his friends in chapter 15. But having just spent all this time meditating on this good news from God and his sovereign power to save all who believe, it's no wonder that with a heart full of love for this church that he bursts into confident praise to God. In fact, this whole letter is really... Ultimately, a letter about God. God is mentioned more times in this book than the verb to be is mentioned. So it's not about what we do. It's a God-centered book about what God has done for us in Christ. And so a proper conclusion really is to praise God for what he's able to do in his church. Paul doesn't need to be worried about their spiritual good. God has the power. He is able to strengthen them. I remember when my son Titus was a baby, uh, like most babies, he lacked the strength to hold up his head. And in particular, his head uh, was very hard to hold up. And even as he gained strength to sit up, and he, he wanted to sit up, we would have to just prop him up with all these pillows around him or sit next to him so he could sort of lean his big head on us. You know, because inevitably, if we didn't, he would topple over. Well, all the churches at this time in history, when Paul's writing, are young, sort of baby churches. And they face great challenges, more so than we do today in our own country. And so on their own, they're likely to fall. And yet Paul knows where the church's strength lies. And he often uses this word for strengthen when when writing these churches. And he applies it to them standing firm in the faith against error. Or standing firm in obedience against temptation. Or being strong and courageous against persecution. So you can think about how a parent cares for a child. Not just so they can sit up or stand up, but, but so that they can grow up. And be strong in every way. And Paul knows that God is able to do that for his people. Not Paul. Not them. But God. And this doxology here contains the different ways that God props us up by his power. And it's all in praise to him. In fact, Romans begins and ends on a statement of God's power. The gospel, in chapter 1, verse 16, is said to be God's power to save. And it's also God's power to strengthen those who are saved here at the end. That's the first place our confidence in God's power comes from. It's through or according to the gospel. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ. Paul calls it my gospel, not because he made it up. Uh, but because it's been entrusted to him. Again, he begins the letter saying, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. It's God's gospel entrusted to Paul to bring about the obedience of the nations, chapter 1, verse 5. Because it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So let's just think about this gospel Paul begins starting in chapter 1 saying that God's judgment is coming. Part of the good news is the bad news that God's wrath is coming against us. Because we've all failed to acknowledge him with our lives. We live without giving thanks to him. And And instead we've chosen to live according to our own desires on our own terms. As if what God has created is better than the creator himself. We've all done that. Therefore, no one's righteous, not not even one person. Which simply means that when it comes to our life before God, no one's perfectly in the right with him. Even the most moralistic, religious person on earth has earned God's judgment. And no amount of good works can change that. That's what Paul says in chapter 2. But then in chapter 3, Paul breaks in with the good news. There's a way to become right with God apart from any works that we have done. Jesus came to live a perfect life. And on the cross, he suffered under the just penalty of God's wrath and died. So that anyone who completely relies upon him, both in his life and his death, is in union with Christ by faith. And so, being in union with Christ, God considers that person righteous in his sight. And Paul ends that whole section on the good news in chapter 4, verse 24, with these words. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification." The reason that the gospel is good news and that we can know that Jesus can save us is because the resurrection declares that our sins were completely paid for in his death. The resurrection says God's wrath is satisfied. And the resurrection becomes the focus of the Christian life in Paul's gospel from that point on. So the very next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 10, Paul argues that if while we were enemies, God saved us from his wrath, through the death of Christ, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by Christ's risen life? The resurrection is the basis in chapter 5 for living under the reign of God's grace and not under sin. So Paul goes on to argue in chapter 6 that not only did we die to, to sin's reign over us when Christ died on the cross, but we were raised with Christ. And so we too may walk in this new way of life according to God's Spirit, chapter 6, verse 4. And if we died with Christ, well, then we will also live with him. Because death no longer rules over him, chapter 6, verse 9. He's resurrected. And therefore, right now, today, we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Of course, chapter 7, he tells us that we're not yet fully alive. Not like Christ is. We still carry around these bodies of death, which still must die. And so what that means is we still struggle with the effects of sin. But Paul's encouragement to us is that one day we will be delivered from these bodies of death and we'll be free from sin forever. Why? How do we know that? Because, chapter 8, Jesus came in a body of flesh and died under the law, but he was raised by the Spirit to life. He is alive, so we will be too. So, chapter 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. And His Spirit who lives in us joins with us in all of our weaknesses so that we might live according to our hope. And what's the hope? Chapter 8, verse 29. It's that we would be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Which means we're guaranteed the path to life and glory that Jesus now has. And so Paul bursts into praise saying, what, are then, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present to things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is God's power to save and strengthen the church. And in Ephesians 1, 20, Paul says that power to strengthen you is like the power that God demonstrated in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see what Paul's saying in his gospel? The resurrection is essential to the gospel and the Christian life. This is how we escape death, both now and now. And forever. If you're here this morning and you're a struggling Christian. Maybe feeling weak under the weight of your own sin. And the ongoing battle that you have with that. Or weak in the face of temptation and unbelief. Or just due to the attrition of ongoing trials and suffering in this world. Listen, find strength for your soul in the gospel. That's where your confidence and joy is found. Jesus overcame all those things in his death. He's been raised to life, and he now lives in you. So find strength in him, in his spirit, through the gospel. You know, maybe just go back and listen to the sermons in Romans 6 again for for gospel encouragement to fight sin. And if you need to, reflect on the gospel in chapter 7 for dealing with failure when you give in to sin. And then move on to the grace of the gospel in chapter 8 for perseverance. It's the gospel that gets us all the way home. That's why we never want to feel like we move on from the gospel. It's the deep end of our faith because it's all about Jesus Christ. And so we want to come each week to church expecting to hear from God and never get tired of talking about the cross. If you think that there's a part of this service, you know, when I'm starting to preach and you go, oh, this part's for the unbeliever or this part is for the new believer. Okay, that's the point where I actually want you to lean in. Those are the parts that are there to strengthen you. Don't lean back because you feel like you've graduated from the gospel. Because as soon as you do that, you fall. Listen with a mindset that knows you should be amazed at what you're hearing. I actually try to do this every time that I'm meeting with somebody who's about to join the church and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing their testimony and their understanding of the gospel. As I'm listening to them share with me, I'm just, I'm, I'm just leaning in to hear that as the miracle as I know it, ought, it is. I'm trying to be amazed again. This kind of God glorifying praise for his power in being able to establish us through the gospel should compel us to make it the center of all of our thinking. To take the focus off ourselves, to put it on Christ so that we rejoice in Christian assurance of God's power to save. That's where your confidence should be. That's where ours should be, for our world, for our church, for ourselves. Not in a pastor, not in the other members of this church, not in yourself, but in God. That's why we so v- highly value his word in this church. We understand that it's what he uses to create and sanctify his people. He, ha- he always has, and no matter what the church has faced in history, she remains today. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever considered all the world events that have taken place in the last couple thousand years? And the, own, the, the, the your own struggles that you face? People have faced those. And yet, the church remains. How is that possible? It's because God is able. So if you yourself want to be propped up by God's spirit and start walking and eventually run with perseverance the race set before us and to do that with joy, go back to the gospel and never lose sight of it. And and since the the gospel here is synonymous with the proclamation about Jesus Christ in verse 25, I, I think we ought to be encouraged here to regularly go back to the gospels themselves. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, as Christians, we need to be revisiting the life and death of Jesus. And that's where we read about it. So whenever you're struggling with the Christian life, maybe, that, maybe you're here today and you're, you're struggling with Christianity itself, read the Gospels. Just, just go spend time reading about Jesus. Now, I, I'd encourage you to block off an afternoon and, and read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. Or maybe read through the Gospel of Matthew as many times as you can in one month. I think the fruit of that time will last for eternity. But the good news about Jesus doesn't just come to us in the Gospels. God is able to strengthen his church according to the Gospel, verse 26, and according to the revelation of the mystery, kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. That is, through his word. Now, when we think about mysteries... We, we tend to think about something that we can't quite figure out. You know, something that we, that, that we can't explain. But that's not how the Bible talks about mystery. A biblical mystery is a reality that we don't see until we do. It's hidden for a time until it's revealed. So, my freshman year of college, I was totally smitten by Melissa. I thought all my actions made that completely, entirely obvious to her. But she didn't see it that way. So I was stuck in this friend zone for over a year until my sophomore year when I finally manned up and revealed to her how I felt. And at that point, she could look back and see, okay, now I see what you were doing. You know, it was just, it was just clear after, after it was revealed how I felt what had been going on the whole time. Mystery revealed. In the biblical sense of mystery. Okay, so so what's the mystery like that that Paul's talking about here? Well, he states it all over his letters. It's the good news of God's salvation in Christ for everyone. Meaning both Jew and Gentile. And he explicitly tells us this back in chapter 3, verse 21. Where he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed... Attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, Jew and Gentile. In both places, Paul's telling us that we should have seen this the whole time. This is the message of the Bible. But it's been a mystery. So it was hidden until Jesus Christ came. And now, in him, we can look back and see what God was saying the whole time. The whole Bible is a message of salvation by grace through faith in the promised Messiah. And isn't this what Jesus says on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? Jesus had been crucified just a few days earlier, and the disciples are arguing about what had taken place, and they're very discouraged. I think we're going to put it up here on the screen here. Jesus appears to them and says in verse 25, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So do you see how Jesus reads and interprets the Old Testament there? He understands that all of it, the law of Moses and the prophets, are about him. And from it, he understood that it was necessary for him to suffer in order to enter into glory. Later in Luke 24, he appears again to even more disciples. And amazed at his presence, because they had just seen him crucified. Here the risen Lord is, he tells them in verse 44... These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, "This is what is written: The Ma- Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed his name in his name to all the nations." So if we read the scriptures like Jesus does, then we can look back and see that it was all about him the whole time. And specifically, according to Jesus, it concerns his death and resurrection. And the reason is so that all nations could be saved. So when Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome about the gospel of Jesus Christ, He demonstrates that truth, the truth of the gospel, from 84 different places in the Old Testament. 84 different places in just one letter. This isn't Paul's gospel that he came up with. It's the one he's been entrusted with by God from the scriptures. I mean, isn't it amazing? Just earlier in the service, we were reading Isaiah 53. A, a, a passage of scripture written over 700 years before Christ came. And you know we have manuscripts that predate Christ with those words? It's clearly about him. So, church, let that do in you what it does in Paul. Rejoice in God with the confident, assur- confident assurance of his salvation in Christ. Because he has revealed it to us in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus really did get up from the dead. Which means everything written about him in the Bible is true. And so you can go back to the Bible again and again and again. And hear it preached every single Sunday. And read it yourself every morning. And hear from God himself in his word about Christ. And be strengthened by his spirit. It's an amazing book. It really is. I'm amazed with it, not not just because of of how good the story is. I mean, it's an amazingly good story. But it's amazing that it's so consistent of a story. Over thousands of years, among many different authors, and verified by historical acts. And on top of all that, its power is still demonstrated today when people believe it and are changed by it. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, we're, we're really glad. I hope one thing you see that will encourage you to come back is that if you keep coming here, you'll, you'll learn more about the Bible. We're committed to just walking verse by verse and even on Easter being in the next chapter because we, we're committed to teaching it. Not just pulling things from it that will work for us and make us feel good, but but actually understanding the argument of the passage each week. We want to know the message of the Bible. And since it's a book that's actually changed the course of history and people you know, you should want to know what it says. And Christian, it's the same for you. Especially since you know yourself to be a sinner. Someone... Prone to cave under the pressure of persecution or the stress of daily life. prone to to doubt and unbelief. Listen, God is able to strengthen you and His spirit does that through His word. So make sure you're reading it. make sure you hear it preached. You know I, I'm still learning. Every week I'm learning. And even if you feel like there's nothing else for you to learn. John Newton once said that new knowledge and new experiences bring new meaning to old texts. But beyond that, we need reminders. You know, we live in a culture that's always looking for something new, as if only the new things are worth learning about. But this deepest and of theological letters, that is Romans, this, this theological like, powerhouse of a book, simply helps the church know better what's already been written. Paul's just expounding the Old Testament. In fact, don't forget that he described Romans as a reminder of certain things in chapter 15, verse 15. So don't move on from the Bible. Don't lose confidence in the Bible. Go deeper. Let, let, let questions and doubt be like fuel for your faith. Because when you take questions and put them to the Bible, that you'll, you'll find answers that actually move you closer to God. That's been my experience as a pastor. The Bible has just proven itself to be a supernatural book. Powerful to accomplish God's eternal plan. That's the other reason that Paul is giving praise to God as he finishes addressing this church. It's according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Paul started off the letter saying that this is one of the purposes of God's grace in him. Chapter 1, verse 5 says that through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. And so in the back of every argument about the faith and the obedience of faith, Paul is actually thinking about God's eternal command here. What's taking place in the church that he's writing to and what he hopes to take place in Spain is part of God's original purpose and plan for the world, his eternal command. Yes, he's singled out Paul at that present time to preach the gospel for the nations. But it has always, always been part of his plan. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, He created people in his image and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, God's plan that came with the command is to fill the world with people who enjoy him in all that they see and think and say and do, so that in every experience of life, God is praised. That's his plan. That's your created purpose, to to know and enjoy God for his glory. But our first parents rebelled against God, and the world fell under the curse of death. And ever since that day, God's eternal command became his redemptive plan. So bringing about the obedience of the nations is consistent with God's eternal command. And it's referenced... It's a reference to the promise in Genesis 49, verse 10, where an Israelite king is said to come from the tribe of Judah one day, and he will win victory over all the nations and bring them into submission to God. And ultimately, that that promise points beyond David, who came from the tribe of Judah, to Christ. And when we come to Isaiah 49... God is calling on the nations to pay attention to what he's about to do in the future. And he says he's raising up a servant who will lead all of God's people, both Jew and Gentile, to do what Adam failed to do. What Adam was commanded to do by God and failed. God says through this servant, the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. And that's why Jesus came. He came to purchase for God that kind of people from every nation with his blood to change them by his spirit and he commanded us to make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And it's for God's sake. It's for God's glory. You see, the, the gospel is revealed not to be talked about but to be submitted to. From early, as early as Genesis 4. We can see that God demands a different kind of obedience than what most man-made religions and moralistic systems come up with. He doesn't want a mechanical obedience of outward conformity, but one that comes from a heart of faith. Now again, we're, we're sinners. Our hearts are, are broken. We, we, we don't live from the heart for God's glory. Jesus is the only one. And he rose from the dead so that through him, we can glorify God. Through Jesus, you and I can live as we were meant to live. We can bring glory to God. Now, in this life, we'll do it imperfectly, but through the resurrected life of Christ, our own resurrection is guaranteed. And so, to him who is able to raise us up also, we will live to God's glory as he has always intended. So, the fact that God commanded this obedience from the nations, from people like us, should give us confidence that not only is the gospel true, but that God will use his power to bring it about. If he commanded it, he will bring it about. What God demands, he provides And the plain truth is, we can already see it happening. I mean, Jesus made a wild claim about the church being built. About the gospel being proclaimed in all the earth. I mean, which person can come up with a product today and say, people are going to talk about this and buy it all over the world. This product that I've just made, invented, It's going to every single place and it won't be a trend. Who's going to say that today? In a place like America, maybe some people, a few people, might dare to dream like that. But if you're a poor carpenter's son under the reign of a foreign power, not so much. You know, Jesus didn't talk about the global growth of the church in the midst of a democracy. And he didn't talk about it from a position of wealth or power. He said that from a place of human weakness. A place of poverty. Of being despised and rejected. And yet he confidently proclaimed that the world would know that God sent him. And that the gospel would be proclaimed in all the earth. And his disciples, who were being persecuted for that message, and who eventually were killed, For that message, also said, This gospel will go out into all the earth and be victorious. And behold, look around, God is able. In his power, he accomplishes his eternal plan. So if you believe, rejoice in Christian assurance for God's sake. Look to Christ and be confident not only in God's power, but in his wisdom. And we'll conclude with this Be confident in his wisdom. Verse 27. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever. Amen. Here's the culmination of praise. In a book about God and his amazing grace towards sinners, Paul does it in the letter in a prayer for his readers, as he often does. But in what feels like this uncontainable urge to praise God, to Him be the glory forever. Giving glory to God here is an expression expression of salvation. And the amazing thing that I don't think we can fully comprehend is how Paul, raised as a devout Jew, the most committed of Jews actually, so zealous that he would hunt down and persecute people who he deemed unfaithful Jews, worships a man Jesus. And to be clear, Paul's belief in one God hasn't changed. And his monotheism is firmly intact here. And yet this Hebrew of Hebrews gives glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. And that's the only way we can. Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. Sin touches everything you and I do. So if sin is blue, everything we do has a, has a hint or a hue of, of blue in it. Even this sermon. No one perfectly loves God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their mind and all of their strength. And yet that's the greatest command. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. He was perfect. He was God In the flesh. And so he lives that perfect life for us. And we know that because God vindicated him when he raised him from the dead. And so through union with Christ by faith, we can do this. We can live for his glory. All that our sin taints in the good that we do is washed away by the blood of Christ. And God gladly receives the good we do for him when we do it from hearts full of faith. So glory to God through Jesus Christ. Yes. You can't do it on your own. You fail. But Jesus can. This is the wisdom of God. Is that he got it from us. His cross, which is foolishness to people, is wisdom. Not only does he save sinners, but through it he gets our obedience. No wonder Paul bursts into praise to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. As we wrap up this book on the gospel, on God, it's helpful to see this and recognize that Christianity really does depend on a person. It's all about Jesus. It's glory to God through him. Without Jesus being who he says he is, Christianity is just a moralistic system of no greater importance than what we might call a good or moral life. But we might call it that. But you can pick up something that you might call good or moral from anywhere else. It's your own version of those things. What makes Christianity unique and special is is that it's a truly moral life that's offered to us through Jesus Christ. Because through him, the, the God-man, we're able to glorify God. And of course, whether or not Jesus is that man depends on the resurrection. If that didn't happen, there's no sense in us being here this morning. Uh, we should all just do our best to try and figure out what might be right, You know, what might work for us, at least at this present time. But if Jesus was raised, then he's the God-man. And listen, there's more reason to believe in the historicity of the resurrection than not. You can't test the resurrection with the scientific method, but that's okay. Our faith can't be shaken by that. The the gospel doesn't depend on scientific discovery, but on a historical event. And so you have to decide what to do with the claims of the gospel based on whether or not the resurrection is, is, is a historical fact or not. And we have all the historical evidence by which we need to determine a historical fact. We have the recorded testimony of eyewitnesses, plus other historical records that are unable to explain the empty tomb. We know that the disciples didn't steal the body and and lie about it because you don't perpetrate a lie that keeps you poor and gets you killed, as most of them were for their faith. Jesus didn't fake his death on the cross and walk out of the tomb on his own. That's absurd. And Rome didn't hide the body. We know that because they spent the next couple of hundred years trying to debunk the resurrection as a myth but all they had to do was present the body if that's what they wanted. And how do you explain the growth of a small number of followers when Jesus was alive to suddenly thousands of followers just a few months later? Listen, the only reasonable explanation for these things is the resurrection. People saw him alive. And his spirit is alive. And he's working in his people. If you have any more questions about that, I'd love to talk with you at the door. There's much more that could be said. Uh, If there's a couple copies left of, of your verdict on the empty tomb, please take one of those. But I pray you see the wisdom of God in this. Jesus Christ raised from the dead to save spiritual rebels and bring them to obedience to God. That's God's wisdom. It's in Jesus. And this is what answers the guilty silence of all humanity in chapter 1. Who refuse to acknowledge God or give him thanks. And the reason that the wrath of God is coming. We get to the end of Romans and it's all praise. And it happens through Jesus Christ. Paul declares, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's rejoice. And let's pray. God, we pray that by the power of your Spirit today in us, that we would rejoice with confidence in what you have done for us in Christ. God, be glorified through Jesus Christ in us. We pray. Amen.